This is Very Public Affairs, the podcast of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. Here's your host. Welcome back to another episode of the Very Public Affairs podcast. I'm Giorgio Platius, Research Assistant at the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs, and today we are very lucky to be joined by none other than Peter Van Onselen. Peter is an academic in the political sciences, a journalist, author, and commentator. He's currently Network 10's political editor, co-host of the Sunday Project, and a contributing editor at the Australian newspaper. Peter, thank you for joining us, and welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back. So first and foremost, what do you see as the big public policy opportunities and challenges facing Australia over the next year? I think that there are huge opportunities, but the challenge is actually getting past the political inertia that is likely to be there in what is, if not an election year, it will be treated like an election year because if they don't actually go to the polls at the end of 2021, they'll go in the first half of 2022. So for all intents and purposes, this will be treated like an election campaign year. Now, the opportunities are boundless because of the pandemic and the, if you like, removal of fiscal constraints around trying to hold on to this almost meaningless budget surplus concept. So with that out of the way, if politicians took a different path in the wake of the pandemic where people would be more open, I suppose, to some form of change, there is a chance to do all manner of things around tax reform, industrial relations reform, and a host of other areas as well. But, and the tragedy of it, I think, is the but, the challenge is that politicians are not only thinking about the election, but they're thinking about an electorate that is probably feeling like it just wants to have a year or two or three of normalcy, not understanding that the changes that the pandemic have wrought on Australia and the world mean that now has to be the time to make adjustments, because if you don't do it, you risk falling behind in the pack in a globalised world. You mentioned that sometime in the next year there'll be an election looming. Um, So what do you think the core policy messaging will be from either side of politics? And with that, what issues do you think will carry over? Well, it's going to be a weird election because the Liberals, I think, I mean, look, they've got lots of issues at the moment on the gender front, uh, and I have no doubt we'll talk about that uh, in some detail uh, to come. But those are issues that, if you like, are only going to make it less likely, not more likely. Uh, that they embrace major policy reforms because policy reforms aren't always popular. There are always losers. Everybody can't be a winner. And often everyone can be a loser in the short term with a long-term payoff because the reform has structural adjustments. So you're going to have a government that naturally doesn't see itself as big reformers. Scott Morrison isn't naturally a reforming prime minister. He's an apparatchik who's now got the prime ministerial title. And on the Labor side, They're interested in reform, but they were interested in reform at the last election and they lost because of it in no small part with the agenda that Bill Shorten had. So I can't see Anthony Albanese, assuming he makes it to the election, I can't see him taking a big target agenda. He will learn the wrong lessons from Bill Shorten's defeat. Uh, Bill Shorten's defeat was about failing to sell big policy, not about embracing big policy. And now we need it more than we needed it in 2019, but we're seeing politicians more likely to run from it rather than run to it. Then... As an academic focused on the political sciences, how, how would you define good leadership? That's a really interesting question. How do I define good leadership? It depends whether you're talking about just the, the, the almost base aim of winning elections or whether leadership is about how you look in the decades to come back on the period that you were in government. These days, most leaders are administrators rather than true leaders. They almost in part on the populist front fall into that sarcastic 
approach from yes minister i am your leader therefore i must follow you you know they read the polls they read the public mood they try not to get too offside of it that gets you in you know, out of step with leadership because ultimately leadership is about taking decisions that are right not necessarily popular in the here and now so i sorry to cut you off but just just quickly what what's what's exactly missing from from today's pack of politicians i think that we've got administrators as politicians these days rather than big reformers you know howard had big reform in his first term you know hawke and keaton had massive reform in their first few terms with microeconomic reforms and of course whitlam was groundbreaking in his reform some of which was undone others became absolutely crucial to what australia is as a cultural country now unfortunately i think today politicians are more like malcolm fraser in the sense that they see themselves as administrators and they run for a major reform so what is good leadership well i don't think we're seeing the traditional framing of good leadership as in showing initiative what we're seeing is good administration and then you can have the debate about how good that administration is that's a really interesting point you just you just raised and i agree that we are missing electorally successful politicians like a hawk a keating a howard in our current political landscape um so given that and the fact that our MPs are meant to set an example and represent us. Over the past year, we have seen the behaviour of our MPs, and particularly the institution of Parliament under scrutiny as a safe workplace. So I'm just curious, in your opinion, is it time for a cultural renewal? And do we need better people in there? Well, clearly, there needs to be some sort of cultural adjustment in the Parliament. I mean, Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, is doing her review that will be interesting to see what she, not only what she perhaps uncovers as part of it, but more importantly, what she recommends by way of change. It, it, the problem with, with Canberra is it's a fly-in, fly-out town. And so there are some people who are working permanently in the building, but then it's a very isolated silo um, in an isolated city, which is a fly-in, fly-out city. So what needs to change? Part of it, I think, is that staffers these days aren't as diverse as they once were. And they perhaps aren't as senior from their backgrounds going into staffing as they once were. It's almost like the decline of the calibre of staffers as public policy experts has occurred precisely because the politicians now see themselves as administrators, not as leaders. So you don't get passionate senior people from business or community organisations deciding to quote unquote make a difference and staff for a politician whom they admire because those politicians are now just administrators. So why would you go into political staffing unless you're hailing from young liberals or hailing from young labor and see yourself maybe one day wanting to be a politician, possibly for all the wrong reasons. So administrators rely on the bureaucracy more than their parliamentary political staff, which I think contributes to those parliamentary political staffers um, having a bit of a, a cultural downhill run. Having said all of that, um, exceptions often prove the rule and I do think that the bad actions that we're seeing reported in the press um, and, in, and on TV are the exceptions, but there are enough of them as exceptions that they're impacting on the overall setting. So what's needed to facilitate change in our, in our federal parliament? Look, I, I think you have to partly change the personnel. Um, look, I think ultimately, I mean, I think I heard a few Labor politicians during the week talking about this. Some of the scenes that have been revealed no amount of uh, workplace training overcomes that because they're systemic problems you know you're either sort of unfit or you're not uh, so i think that the biggest changes ultimately have to come through 
you know, the, the, the prioritization of politicians around getting people into senior staffing roles who have got more life experience and it becomes less like a frat house. Uh, there has been a change to that effect, I think, from the time that I've looked at staffers from 20 years ago to now, when researching pre-parliamentary backgrounds of MPs even. It's a similar reflection. The MPs have got more staffing backgrounds. There's nothing wrong with time in staffing, um, but it's about that time in staffing being because it is an add-on to what you've already got to contribute based on your own pedigree in whatever, whatever area you come from to go into political staffing. Staffing, political staffing, is not a vocation on its own. It's something that you should pop in and out of based on the expertise you take to it from other areas. Do you think that this has a trickle-down effect on organisations and corporate Australia? And really, is corporate Australia any different? Are they better than Parliament? What are, what are your thoughts on that? I think organisations outside of the theatre of politics are infinitely better than what the parties are because they have practices in place that they've long had in place around diversity, training, um, due process, proper HR facilitation. You've got to remember there's limited, if any, HR facilitation inside Parliament House. It's one of the problems. Your master is your politician and they can essentially hire and fire you almost at will. Uh, now, at one level, I get that because it's partisan political as an environment. So you need to be able to you, know, you can't, for example, it's very hard. Can you imagine having been a Liberal politician and having a staffer that decides that they've had a change of heart and they're now a diehard Labor activist? It's just it's illogical, right? Whereas in organisations where they're not partisan, you can have better processes and those beliefs are almost extra to your, to your workplace practices. So Parliament House is uniquely difficult to improve, but I look at corporate Australia and I think that, yeah, sure, there's problems, but that, you know, corporate Australia... 20 years ago is where Parliament House is today. And you've had a busy week breaking stories about the culture in Parliament House and, and of course, the lewd behaviour that's accompanied this. So do you think it's your duty as a journalist and commentator to tell these stories? And with that, how does good journalism hold our politicians to account? I wouldn't call it a duty. I mean, we're in an interesting moment in time. So the the story um, that, that I had on 10 that if you like, you know, open things up such that the Prime Minister finally decided to have that extraordinary press conference where he said he's not going to let his wife and his daughters and his mother down. Uh, it was, for him, it was almost the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, he was criticised for acting on some pretty lewd images and, and video that was revealed rather than having already acted because of allegations of a rape and, and various evidence of sexual uh, misconduct before that. Uh, I think the reason it probably motivated him is because it went from allegations to video evidence. And he'll be criticised for that, but I think it just suddenly just mounted up to a point where it brought him into action. Uh, these are things that we're at a moment in time, I think, where, where people, women in particular, but a lot more than just women, are calling for change. The Prime Minister seems to have finally recognised that. Uh, he's now got a few weeks ahead to see if he can actually put something tangible in place to go with the rhetoric. People are still very cynical about that. Um, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's see. Finally, just shifting gears and focus to the States. Um, COVID has really presented Australia with a challenge to not only put forth effective messaging on vaccines, on restrictions, but it has... I feel forced states to come together and cooperate in a way under the federal government that has we haven't really seen before. Do you think that this cooperation will 
extend beyond the pandemic? And what do you think the pandemic has done to help or, or damage the image of states as an institution of our government? I don't think the cooperation between states and the Commonwealth or indeed between states will survive the pandemic. And let's remember, there was a lot of lack of cooperation at different points in time as well anyway. But what I find interesting is that there has been a rise and rise in the prestige and the power of states at the end of decades of us assuming that federalism was dying. The idea of empowering states over the Commonwealth seemed to be trickling away as everything was centralised in Canberra. Then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and we realise, well, actually, state governments still have a hell of a lot of service delivery powers and even under the Constitution have a hell of a lot of powers as well. So the one power that they don't have is the power to raise enough funds, which is why they have to always go cap in hand to the Commonwealth. That wasn't an issue during the pandemic because the Commonwealth was throwing money around willy-nilly. But when it comes to actual service delivery and actual power managing states and borders, we now realise that the states are very powerful. What does that mean? Well, that means that we have to understand that those states can't just be ignored by a Commonwealth just because the Commonwealth uh, pulls the purse strings. Well, Peter, thank you for your time. Good to chat. If you enjoyed this episode of Very Public Affairs, subscribe in iTunes and leave a review. For more, visit the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs website at www.accpa.com.au.